Angola State Penitentiary is in the city or in the state of Louisiana. Uh, it's known as the largest penitentiary in the United States of America. But that's not all that Angola State Penitentiary is known for. It's known, it's been for years, known as a violent place. Uh, it is uh, considered uh, one of the bloodiest prisons in the United States of America due to uh, harsh conditions, the, the deaths that have come to prisoners in that prison. Angola is a rough place. Several years ago, uh, there was word that the gospel, the gospel had infiltrated the prison. There was a number of articles written about uh, the, the work that the gospel was having on this prison. There was a Bible, uh, Bible college started in the prison. And the gospel was infiltrating uh, the prisoners. It was infiltrating the culture there and beginning to change Angola prison. Now, there's still a lot of work that needs to be happening at Angola. <laughs> it's still a, a difficult and a violent place, but the gospel is indeed making an impact. There is a, a Bible college there. There are ministries that are going there, and men are, be, are getting saved and becoming ministers of the gospel. It's amazing. Brothers and sisters, the gospel shakes things up. It shakes things up. It's, it's dynamic. When the gospel and its implications are working through communities, when it's working through systems, when it's infiltrating the lives of individuals, things change. They don't stay the same. They change. The gospel, or better yet, Christ, isn't interested in just blending in. It's not interested in being added onto your life. No, Christ wants to take over. He comes in to take over. He pokes and he prods. He reveals and he exposes. Christ comes in and makes some noise in your life. Matthew 10, 34 says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Christ comes to set divisions. He doesn't come just to hang out. He comes to shake things up. He tells a parable of math in Matthew 13 and 33. And he says this, the kingdom of God is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Brothers and sisters, Jesus enters into your life and he permeates everything. He permeates everything. And if that is the case, if Christ comes in and he's not simply interested in just being added on but taking over, then those around you should take notice. They should be impacted by your lives. Your life, your community, your relationships are all affected when Jesus Christ comes into your life. That is what is happening in Ephesus. That's what's happening in Ephesus. The gospel was having a tremendous impact on the city. 
There had been a strong gospel witness there, right, by Paul and his band of brothers and sisters. Remember, Apollos was once in Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla were there. Timothy and Luke and a few other members of the team who we will learn about today. These men and women have been preaching in the synagogues, preaching in the streets, teaching the scriptures, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And because, as we heard last week, that when God's word goes forth, it does not return to it, to it, it void, that it accomplishes what it has been set forth to accomplish. Men and women have been hearing this gospel, have been responding in faith, turning from their sins, repenting, and placing their faith and their trust in God. The the city of Ephesus is being changed for the glory of God. But where the gospel advances, there trouble follows behind. Satan, as we have learned from studying the book of Acts, implores all kinds of tactics. He pulls out all the stops, engages in a full-on attack to try to stop the progression or the movement of the kingdom of God. And his schemes are no different in Ephesus. Luke tells us in our text that Paul has plans to return to Jerusalem. But before going there, he desires to go to Macedonia and to Achaia. There are churches there that were planted on his earlier missionary journeys that he wants to encourage. He wants to strengthen and and, and, and visit them before heading on to Jerusalem. But his main concern, his main goal is to get to Rome. He wants to get to Rome because he is convinced that if he gets to Rome, here will be another strategic city in which the gospel can spread to the rest of the world. But before Paul leaves for Jerusalem and with his goal of Rome in mind, God wants to encourage him with one last thing, one last event. He wants to encourage Paul to let him know to continue on. That, that he could continue on because the, the gospel was dynamic power and an influence and a resilience that could not be matched. Let's pick up the account in verse 23. It says there, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. No little disturbance concerning the way. I I love that phrase. I love that phrase. It's important that we understand what Luke means here when he refers to the way. Perhaps you recall that this is the name that was given to Christ followers uh, before they were given the name Christians. We first, we first heard of this, of this term back in Acts chapter 9. It referred to the way in which those who believed in Jesus lived. It, it signified that the way of Christ was different from the norm. For Jesus said in, in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so to be part of the way was to be a follower 
of Jesus. And just like we said, those whose lives are impacted by Jesus, they have their lives shaken up. And it permeates and has an impact on all those around them. They live differently. People, systems, communities around them are affected. The city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus is being changed, is changing because there are Christians there. You remember the account that we looked at last week? Those who were practicing magic were confronted by the gospel and believed in Jesus, and they began to repent and discard those things that would keep them from honoring Christ. They wanted their lives to match up with what they believed. There was no let's just fold Jesus into what we're doing. No, they were obedient to the work of God and began to burn their books of magic and sorcery. The gospel causes you to turn from sin and ungodliness, not to continue in it and slap the label Christian on it. If you are a thief and you get saved, you don't just get to continue stealing and call yourself a Christian thief. Sounds silly, doesn't it? A Christian thief, it sounds silly. But you, did you know that there are people sitting in churches all around the country this morning? I, I might beg to say that there are some sitting here who call themselves Christian, but their lives are in complete contradiction. Brothers and sisters, we don't just get to continue in the sin that we once lived in and call ourselves Christian. This disturbance, this disturbance in the city was caused by Christians who were actually living like Christians. You hear that? This disturbance is in direct correlation to how the gospel is affecting the lives of those who are followers of Christ. Demetrius, Demetrius, our text tells us, was a silversmith. And he is irate because his business is declining. A, a once booming business of idol making is slowly losing steam. Look at what, look at what he says is the cause for this. Men Verse 25, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius says that the reason why business is declining is that Paul is persuading men and women to follow the true and living God. And, and just like the magicians, 
They were obedient to the word of God and turned away from idol. they, idols. They turned away from their, their, their former ways. No longer did they worship idols fashioned by hands of Demetrius and his friends. They worshiped the true and living God. It was not made by hands. And because this was the case, because they decided to turn away from idols, Demetrius and his band of brothers who were, who were, who were making these idols and selling them and, and making a profit off of them, people were no longer buying those things. They were no longer buying the shrines because they were following after the true and living God. Business was suffering for these idol makers because Christ had come in and changed life. Christians were impacting the city. The way these Christians were living their lives impacted the city. There's a reason why I'm emphasizing that. There is a, there is a, point, there is a point of reflection for us here at East Point Church. There's a point of reflection here. It it, it begs questions when you read this and you say these Christians were having an economic impact on the city. It begs questions. Are we having an impact on this city? Do people know that we are here? Is there a difference being made because we are in the city of East Point? Are are we affecting the businesses? Is there less crime, better schools, less homelessness on the streets in East Point because we, East Point Church, are in the city? Are the drug dealers and the human traffickers upset that we are here? These are, brothers and sisters, these are convicting questions. These are convicting questions because it it begs the question if we are living what we really believe. Because if the gospel comes in, we should have an impact on those around us. What difference is East Point Church making in this city? I'm convicted by these questions. You know, I'm always struck I'm always struck by the the Christ followers that we read about in Antioch. You remember that? There there was something noticeably different about them. They they were having such an impact that that people had to come up with a different name for them. There were Jews and there were Gentiles and they were were worshiping together. They, They were sharing their lives with one another. And people are looking at them and saying, well, they're not Jews and they're not Gentiles. We have to call them Christians because they're Christ followers. Their lives look different. There are people that look at us and say, we're different. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just true corporately. Oh, it trickles down to our individual lives as well. Think about your neighborhood. Think about your apartment complex, your your school, your job. Are there disturbances there because you are part of the way? Are you shaking things up? Are, Are people upset because the way you're living your lives is impacting them financially? Maybe it's impacting them culturally? 
It's going against their norm. It's, it's disrupting their categories. They, they can't make sense of it. This, this doesn't make sense. The gospel comes in and it disrupts. When, when the gospel is lived out, brothers and sisters, when it's lived out in our lives, it disrupts the status quo. It pokes and it prods. It prods the idolatrous systems and underpinnings of the world around us. It disrupts the cultural norms and and ways of living. In fact, I, I might go as far as to say if there is no change, if people are not in some way offended or impacted by the way in which you are honoring Christ with your life, then you may need to evaluate what you really believe. Because when the gospel, when the gospel impacts you, those around you are impacted. It shakes things up. The, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, a little bit, and it leavens the whole loaf. Thought about this as so we're thinking about a place to, to move to as a church. East Point is a big city. East Point has a lot of different neighborhoods. Some neighborhoods good, some neighborhoods not so good, right? What if God were to put us in a neighborhood not so good? What if he were to do that? He can do that. I don't know where we're going to go. I wish I knew where we were going. But what if he did that? Well, if we were there, then that would mean that here would be an opportunity for us to live what we believe and see how the gospel has an impact on a community. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is powerful. It does that. It comes in and it shakes things up. You know one of the ways that it does that? You know one of the, one of the ways that it does that is by exposing the idols that dominate those cultures and environments seek, that it's seeking to infiltrate. It exposes the idols. It, it brings them to light. The, the, the gospel comes, it shines its light on a community, on a system, and it exposes the idols. That's what it did in Ephesus. In Ephesus, we see the gospel expose the idol of wealth. That is what Demetrius is so upset about. They, they're taking money from our pockets. He is concerned that the message that Paul is proclaiming and that the people of Asia are believing is expecting them financially. For Demetrius and his tradesmen, this, this, wealth, this wealth that they had, this trade, meant um, wealth. It meant status. It meant, it meant prosperity. It meant security, well-being. Well, that was being threatened. That was, that was being pulled out from under them. Their, their source of security, this wealth that they were making because of, uh, of the idols that they were making and fashioning with their hands was slowly being stripped away from them and they didn't like it one bit. You know, it's easy to look at this text and you read it and you hear about this Greek goddess Artemis and And you say, well, that's the idol that's being exposed. But actually, this text is full of idols. It's full of idols. In in, in fact, uh, uh, 
This text not only reveals the idols that were present in Ephesus, it reveals the idols that are often present in our own hearts and in our own lives. You understand that idols are not just inanimate objects that we fashion with our hands. They are anything, anything, even good things that seek to garner our worship and govern or, or have sway over our feelings and emotions. I like what the website Peacekeepers, how, how they define what an idol is. It says this, and I quote, Most of us think of an idol as a statue of wood, stone, or metal worshipped by pagan people. But the concept is much broader and far more personal than that. An idol is anything apart from God that we depend on to be happy, fulfilled, secured. In biblical terms, it is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters and rules us, or that we trust, fear, or serve. In short, it is something we love and pursue in place of God pretty exhaustive idol, a pretty exhaustive definition. When you look at that definition and you start to to, to look at your lives, you say, wow, my heart, as Calvin says, is an idol factory. I don't know of many more idols or or idols that plague both our society and even our lives like wealth does, like the pursuit of money. The idol of fortune and wealth plagues our society. The the mood and security of our nation, it rises and falls with the ways of the stock market. People people pursue money and prosperity thinking that that is what is going to save them, that that if they they retire with a big enough S-neg that they'll be okay. Nest egg, not egg nest, right? Nest egg. (laughs) That they'll be okay thinking that if they amass enough wealth, all will be well with them. Money, money, money does not equal security. No matter what the president says or the treasury secretary says, it it doesn't equal security. Jesus warns against this attitude in Matthew 6, 19 through 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The the gospel, the gospel comes in and, and, and it disturbs that which is false, that which gives the appearance of God, but is actually no God at all. It exposes the idol of wealth. Money provides many a false hope and many a false dream. Demetrius and his boys were finding this out firsthand. They're not buying idols Uh, Our bank account is getting depleted. We're in trouble. This text, we see the the idolatry of money exposed, but we also also see the the gospel expose the idol of religion. The idol of religion. Demetrius is not just irate about the money. 
he and his buddies are losing their system of worship. It, it is being threatened. And so he begins to stir these men up, and, and he gathers them in a room, and, and he says this. And there is no danger, not only that in this trade of ours may, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, the, you see Artemis was crucial to Ephesus. She was crucial to Ephesus. She was held in high esteem. She was the the goddess of fertility, the moon and hunting goddess. She, in many ways, is who this city was built upon. Commerce, worship, political power, infrastructure, all flowed through this Greek goddess, Artemis. You know what the gospel did? It showed up and pulled her card. It showed up and pulled her card. Idolatry stands no chance against the living God. Paul, like he had told the Athenians, was proclaiming that Artemis was no God at all, that she was dead and worthless, and that they needed to repent, turn from her, and follow the living God. This is what Paul and his team were proclaiming. This is what Jesus was doing as he walked with and engaged with the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Their idol was the law and keeping it. And at every turn, Jesus was poking and prodding at their their, their idol of religion, slowly tearing it down, their security, undercutting their perceived authority. Here's Paul and this missionary team doing the same thing. People love their man-made religion. They love it. They love it. Gods of their own making, fashioned, fashioned, formed and fashioned in their, their own image. Provides worth and a sense of piety. But in the end, it is dead and empty religion. Void of power void of life. It is an idol that gets exposed when the light of the gospel shines on it. Now, brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear on a lot of things. It's clear on a lot of things. But when it comes to idol worship, it is crystal clear. You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 44, 9 through 11 says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. God despises idol worship, and the gospel exposes it, exposes it. There's only one true and living God. Turn from idols and trust the true and living God. But here's the deal. When idols get exposed, when idols get exposed, what happens? 
the gloves come off. <laughs> the, the gloves come off. They don't go down without a, a fight. They, they, they fight. They get angry. That's what happened when Jesus walked in Jerusalem, and it happened when Paul and the missionary teams walked the streets of Ephesus. What makes you think it will be any different for us? We can expect the same pushback that we're going to read about here in our text when we live lives that impact the communities in which we live. What happened in Ephesus when these idols got exposed? A a riot broke out. They were fighting to keep their idols, and they were fighting hard. The the anger and the hostility and the the animosity in these next few verses is mind-blowing. They don't, they don't go after Paul. Paul is the issue, right? They name Paul as the one who was, who, was, who was talking about their idols, but they don't go after Paul. They go after those who are with Paul. They round up Gaius and uh, Aristarchus and drag them before a theater of men who are bent on persecuting them. This mob scene, and like any, any mob scene, you, you have a lot of confusion and And there are people who are angry just because they're they're chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Look what Luke calls attention to, to show the the sheer foolishness of this, the the mass confusion of this gathering. It's almost like he inserts some comedic relief. Verse 32, now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. How silly. How foolish. They just, they just see a group, a riot happening, and they're just angry for no reason. They start chanting and yelling out. The crowd is so violent and dangerous that when Paul wants to go to speak up on behalf of his, of his fellow uh, missionaries, he is urged not to grow. Other Other followers of Christ and friends in Asia plead for him not to go and engage the crowd. You know what this anger, you know what this this hostility revealed? It revealed that the the idols of the heart are deep. They are deep. It shows that in Ephesus, the idols in that culture were, were embedded deep in their systems. You know, we say it all the time. You can always tell where the idols are by the response you get when you try to remove them. When they are poked and prodded, idols don't go away quietly. That's true in our own lives, isn't it? We feel that. We, we know that. We, we, we know very much the riot and the fuss that was put up by these Ephesians. We know it because we put it up. When, when the idols get exposed in our lives or when they were exposed, some of us, God graciously has rescued us. But, but we remember the fight that we put up when those idols got exposed, when the things that we, we felt were of utmost value, uh, the things that we worship began to be taken from us. We know what happens. We, we begin to fight. We, we fuss. We, we riot just like these Ephesians. God, in his grace and in his mercy, lovingly 
lovingly points out an idol in your life, and instead of rejoicing and and seeing it as God's grace to you, you deny it. You begin to attack the person that pointed it out to you. I don't have an idol. You You have the issue, not me. Begin to act irrational and get angry for no reason. Start yelling for no reason. You, you say it's not an idol, why are you yelling? Why, why are you getting upset? I, I, just, I, was, I was just being gracious. <laughs> we begin to act irrational, just like this riot in Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, idols don't go down without a fight. But don't you understand that when God reveals your idols to you, it is so that you would turn from them and trust in him. Turn from those idols and trust in him. Psalm 115 says says this, their idols are silver and gold, speaking of the nations. The the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here's God's plea. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Christ comes in and he shatters the idols. He belittles our idols so that we can see they are of no value. They don't secure. They don't satisfy. They don't comfort. Only Christ does. So, so, so trust him. That's the exhortation. Your idols get exposed so that you can see that they're really a sham, that, that you need to turn from them and turn to the living God who is your comfort, who is your security, who is your salvation. You can trust in him. Only Christ does it. Brothers and sisters, if, if this text has revealed an idol in your heart, I pray that you would see that that's God's grace to you. He's brought you here for a reason. Perhaps you need to to know and see the idol that's in your heart and say, I need to turn from it. It's of no value. I want to trust Christ. Don't be, don't be, don't be like these Ephesians who had their idols exposed and they didn't turn from them. It just fueled the anger and the animosity that they had. Their idols were threatened. The Ephesians were ready to do harm to, to Gaius and Aristarchus. But in the midst of this riot, you know, as I'm reading through this, I'm like, well, where's the Lord? We don't, we're not hearing of God in this text. Where, where is he? Here he is. In the midst of the riot, it's their yelling, and the Jews put up Alexander to speak, and and, and, and Alexander is overshouted by the crowd. Great is, the, the, is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. They're, they're screaming. It says for two hours that they're going at this. Their, their pride, they're, they, it, they, they don't want to give up this idol. 
midst of this riot, there is one voice of reason. The town clerk is able to quiet the crowd. He's able to quiet the crowd. He has political power among this group of men and desires that there be some order. Surprisingly, he is able to, to bring order to this riot. He does so with reason, noting that that these men have done nothing wrong. And actually, they they haven't broken any laws. Their actions are actually what could be in question and cause them them to be in danger of breaking the law. They're they're the ones that are breaking the law, this, this town clerk says. They're the ones that are breaking it. Just like Gallio, who spoke up for Paul in Corinth. So we see this town clerk speak up for these men. You notice that they didn't have to say a word. Just like Paul before Gallio in, 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 in Corinth, Paul didn't open up his, he was about to, and then, and then Gallio spoke up. Gaius and Aristarchus, they, they don't say anything. Aristarchus, they don't say anything. They just, town clerk speaks. God sovereignly, sovereignly used this non-believing man, even in all of his ethnic, religious, and political pride, to save his people from harm. God sovereignly did that. Here's Paul. Paul. Paul wanted to go. Paul wanted to stand up. Paul wanted to speak. But God kept him from speaking, and he used a pagan. He used a pagan to save his people from harm, using the law to continue the furtherance of the gospel. Here is Paul once again on his way to Rome to continue to preach the gospel, and God here is encouraging him once again to remind him that the gospel is powerful, that this is God's work. That God, that God saves his people, that, that it is his gospel, and he is working in the lives of individuals to take it to the nation. And even, and even an idolatrous, raucous riot could not stop it. But God was powerful to overthrow even this, this riot so that the gospel could keep marching forward. And this all started, all of this ruckus started because Christians lived like Christians and the city began to change. Oh, brothers and sisters, no little disturbance occurred because of the way. I pray it would be said of us that in the city of East Point, that as the gospel continues to infiltrate our schools, our political system, our police departments, the neighborhoods, that it would one day be said of East Point. There's no little disturbance happening because there are Christians here at East Point who desire to point people to Jesus and to live lives 
like, like that of what they believe. And it is having an impact in the city.